Are we on uh, go again? I'll, I'm going to continue to sit in this or stand in this position and use the overhead here. Maybe some of you want to move because there are some seats over here. I don't want to block you out all of the time. And I, I don't want to shrink into the, the floor. So if you, you know, move over a bit, you might catch a little bit more of the overhead. During the refreshment break, somebody asked a very good perceptive question. And the question went something like this. Shouldn't we also have outcomes-based education? Shouldn't we build everything on the kinds of purposes that we're striving to attain or the outcomes we're trying to achieve? And I said, no. And I, I want to have you think about this. We certainly want to do like Tyler did, to set our purposes or our goals or our objectives, whatever you might want to call them, set them in such a way that we can build on them our methodologies and our evaluation procedures. But notice what they do. They say they're based on outcomes. They're not based there at all. There is a very different foundation. There is a very different basis. To say that they're outcome-based is, again, <coughs> devious and wrong. They are based on humanist assumptions or presuppositions that man is autonomous. They're saying, you can decide whatever you want because you are an autonomous individual. And if you want to have objectives X, that's fine. If you want objectives Y, that's fine. Whatever you choose is okay because you are the ultimate authority. We should never accept that. Never. Let me now go back to the overheads. <coughs> That's about 100% improvement. Great. Uh, the rest of the week is going to be coming out of darkness into light. <laughs> what I'm suggesting here is that we put some titles to these categories to simplify the whole process of organizing our thoughts, organizing the sets of ideas. And what I'm saying is that A can be categorized into what we might call objectives or goals. And there are a number of synonyms that you can use there. You can talk about purposes, or you can talk about ends, or you can talk about aims. And basically they're all very, very similar as to meaning. Don't get caught up in those synonyms and say, well, you must use objectives and you may use aims and you... That, that's nonsense. We can also talk about structural organization or we can talk about the government of the schools. Who's going to run? Who's going to control? Who's going to 
that, and I'll just call that structural organization. All of those questions that we ask about the nature of students, I'm simply collecting that in a category called the nature of man. And then questions of evaluation, questions of implementation or methodology, questions about the basis or the foundation or the authority. And now what we need to try to do is to organize them sequentially, logically, so that they make the best sense, so that we start in the right place and we end in the right place. Think in terms of taking a journey. Think in terms of a pilgrim's progress through life. There is some place that we want to end up at. We want to arrive at some point and we are starting at some point and there is going to have to be a number of activities along the way to get us to point A. That's our objective. Think analogously about taking a trip from Chicago to Los Angeles. You have a starting point and you have an ending point. We started yesterday morning in, in Chicago and we ended up in Crestline. A little bit devious route, Mr. Turn once. But there are questions now about where you start from, where you want to end up, and questions how you're going to get there. We could have, could have gone by boat. That's very true. You could get in the Illinois-Michigan Canal and go down the, the canal all the way to the Illinois River, Illinois to Mississippi, Mississippi to the Gulf, through the Panama Canal up and get by boat. We'd have a tough time getting from L.A. to Crestline by boat. <laughs> the river was dry the last time we looked. But you could also do it by bicycle. I saw some foolish fellow going up this hill with a bicycle. You could get here by horseback, you could walk, you could, but we took a plane. The method that you get to the point is not nearly as crucial, as significant in my book, as trying to determine where you start from and where you want to end up. Those are questions that take priority and precedence over methodologies. I personally don't worry much about methodologies. I leave that to other people. I prefer to spend a lot of time saying, where are we starting? So, Some of you who have read my book, Education and the Truth, will probably recognize this skeleton, this structure. What I argue for is the idea that you must start out, you must make very clear at the outset your basis. That is the most important thing. I credit Cornelius Ventil and all of his writings for helping me come to understand that. I don't know how many of you are presuppositional in your apologetics, 
I am, and I'm unapologetic for that. <laughs> Cornelius Ventil has helped me to recognize that everybody has presuppositions. Everybody has working assumptions that they start with. And it's very important that you identify or try to figure out what they are. He has helped me tremendously over my lifespan of critiquing competing philosophies. Because there are all kinds of competing philosophies of education out there. He has helped me tremendously in my criticism of the evolutionary movement. Because evolutionists have a number of fundamental presuppositions that they start with. And unless you know what they are, you can't effectively attack them. You can't effectively deal with them. So Cornelius Ventil has been tremendously helpful. And if there's a book out uh, published just not too terribly long ago in which some of his ideas are summarized about Christian education, uh, next to my book, it's the best one on the market. I'm glad he's not around to hear that. What I do now is suggest to you that this is the sequence of our thinking. That we ought to start there with the basis. Get that clear in our minds. And once we have that clear, then we can go on and talked about the nature of man. And notice there on the right side, I'm saying another way to address this, another way to paraphrase this is what we are. Or if you want to use language of professional philosophers, you have to talk about the is. We want to move from the is to the ought from what we are by nature, by birth, to what we ought to be. We ought to move in that direction. So we are going to move now from the basis, from discussion, consideration of the basis, to the nature of man. And once you've come clear as to what the child, or what the student, what the educand is like, what we are working with, then we can move to the next step and begin to talk seriously about what we ought to be. Let me just paraphrase this in another way to help make the point clear. I'm going to be arguing for the rest of this week that all of us are creations of God. Every child comes into the world because of a miraculous thing called birth, that God blesses the womb. God brings children to life. Many of them are disobedient, rebellious citizens in his kingdom who, ever, who never are willing to listen to him. They're never willing to acknowledge that he is their father, their creator, their lord, their king. But they still are his creatures just rebellious creatures. I need to lear learn as much as I can about kids. If I come into a classroom, if I come and I have a faulty understanding of what people are like, 
highly probable that I won't be terribly effective. Highly probable. If I understand what they are like, what their nature, what their characteristics are, and if I know what they ought to learn, then there is a good possibility that I can move to that point and be effective in teaching them. Good possibility. Then I need to move beyond that and say, okay, who is responsible for doing this? I have to ask that question. Should I simply turn this whole job over to the state and say, public school, take it over. Here, they're yours. Would that be responsible? I would say no. Should I simply say, church, here are all the kids that are part of your membership. It's your job to educate. Take them. And again, I would say, no, that's not what my authority teaches. Parents have that responsibility. I believe my reading of the Bible is rather convinced me that the primary responsibility for the educating of children is given to the parents. Now, I'm not going to deal with this question a lot in the next few days. So let me just emphasize it here. I very specifically chose the word primary. I did not say exclusive. I think the church, as church, also has a responsibility to children. I, I emphasize that point because last fall, teaching part of the education course at Mars Seminary, some of the students had it in their craw from somewhere, and I don't know where they ever got it, that the church had absolutely no business doing any kind of educational work with the children of the church. Where did you ever get that idea? Who stuck that in your head and made it stick? They didn't know. Well, get it out. Primary responsibility is given to the parents. Fathers, not mothers, primary responsibility is given to fathers. Fathers instruct your children in the Lord. The father can say, Mom, <laughs> wife, uh, i got to get off to the bank this morning and do some work, or i got to get off to my job. Uh, you take over, make sure that this happens, that happens. That's fine. The father still is responsible. The father always has that primary responsibility. doesn't mean that the wife, the mother, doesn't have any Again, it's not exclusive responsibility, it's primary. Does the state have some responsibility? Yes, I think the state does. I think the state legitimately has a concern that the citizens of the country get an education. And I think they ought to be concerned about getting a good education. And I think it is legitimate to collectively say, together, that we want the state to set up schools, to build schools, even to run schools. But they ought to have good schools. Now, of course, notice what's happened. Now I just get pushed into the next category of questions. How are you going to do it? 
what kinds of methodologies, what kinds of materials, what kinds of things are you going to use to accomplish that purpose? And then I finally have to ask that question, after all that's been said and done, was that a good school? Did my kids get a good education? Uh, excuse me, did God's children get the kind of education he wants them to get? Because they're really not mine, they're his. So I have to ask questions of evaluation only really after I've asked a lot of other questions that preceded. So what I have done, and this I'm glad to say by the grace of God, this particular methodology, this particular system of arranging ideas, uh, I first articulated back in 1968 put them into print in the book Education and the Truth and by God's grace the book is still being used in a number of places it's still on the market I'll <coughs> if the Lord allows me uh, in a couple of years I hope to publish a new expanded revised enlarged better book called Transformational Pedagogy or What God Tells Us About Education that's the title of one that's cooking and hopefully the Lord will give me years to do that. I'll, now, this is what I simply call my philosophy. When somebody asks, what is your philosophy of education? I will give them this kind of condensed, boiled down version. And of course, each category, each statement there is packed with all kinds of meanings, with all kinds of subpoints. And nobody to this day has uh, effectively challenged it as a set of ideas. They've accused me of being a biblicist. Amen. That's fine. <laughs> that, that's okay. I have no problem with that. That's a compliment. Uh, and they've, Some people have accused me of finding things in the Old Testament and therefore being old-fashioned. That's fine. Uh, by the way, let me interject talking about the Old Testament. Did any of you find Jesus Christ in Numbers 35 when you did your devotions this morning? I hope you found him there because he's big and bold in Numbers 35 in the cities of refuge. Jesus Christ is there for all the Old Testament people to see. So don't do it now. When you get a chance, read that passage again if you didn't find Jesus Christ there. I find him all through the Old Testament. All through the Old Testament. Beautiful, beautiful pictures of the Savior there. But that's digressing a little bit. Let me now focus in on the matter of the basis or the foundation. Somebody probably has seen that visual before. Uh, no? None of you recognize that one? It's not mine. It's not original. A good friend by the name of Ken Ham from the ICR. 
Yeah, you, some of you know Ken Ham? Uh, has given me permission to use a number of his visuals. He and I have met and uh, we're in many ways kindred spirits. Uh, and he is saying he uses this in one of his programs uh, and I think it's very, very appropriate. Our thinking in every area is based on the Bible. In every area is based on the scriptures. Let me say a couple of things about that. I don't mean to suggest or imply, as I said, I think, last night, that you are going to find every question to every methodological concern in the Bible. You aren't going to find there an answer to whether or not you ought to teach phonetic reading or sight-sound reading. You aren't going to find in the Bible whether or not you should spell spell with a she. Those kinds of things aren't going to be there. The Bible is like a road map. If I get a map of California and look at it, every street and every road and every creek and every river is not going to be on that map. But all of the major ones are. And if you look at that map and study it, you can find here goes Expressway 5, there goes Expressway 105, there goes Expressway 80, there goes... And you will find all the major state roads, and you'll find all the major mountain ranges, and all the major rivers. That's the way the scriptures are. All the minutiae, all of the minute detail and so, is not there. But God gives us not only the light of his word, but then he also gives us the light of nature so that we can go down that major highway and we can pick up, oh, there's another stream, there's a little county road, there's a little unmarked gravel road. All of that stuff that becomes in view as we travel those main highways of God's word. Some of you are conversant with the Belgic Confession. It's very, very similar to what it says in the Westminster Confession of Faith. The sufficiency of the Holy Scriptures to be the only rule of faith. It is unlawful for anyone, though an apostle, to teach otherwise than we are now taught in the Holy Scriptures. Neither may we consider any writings of men however holy these men may have been, of equal value with these divine scriptures. Nor ought we consider custom or the great multitude or councils, decrees or statutes as of equal value with the truth of God, since our truth is above all. Therefore, we reject with all our hearts whatsoever does not agree with this infallible rule. The Westminster has a very similar kind of statement. Uh, and we're simply saying that nothing may ever take priority over God's word. If we get into a discussion, if we get into a debate, and if it doesn't involve something that can be addressed by God's word, then it isn't important enough to fight about. Don't get involved in silly squabbles. If it's important enough so that the subject is addressed by God's word, then there's only one standard or one 
authority that we may use to settle that question. I, I'm a firm believer, for example, that the Bible speaks extensively and intensively about education. It gives us tremendous amount of direction, tremendous amount of, of perspective and purpose for our school. I'm also convinced that it does the same thing on the whole question of creation evolution. The whole question about the nature of science is addressed very adequately by the Word of God. Let me dig out from my uh, briefcase another transparency. Now this is an old transparency. It will be updated in the new book. And this is not in the education book. I've been a student of history of education as well as the philosophy of education. We as Calvinists say that we are God-centered and we're Bible-based. The world around us is constantly wandering and trying to figure out why their system doesn't work and why it doesn't satisfy. Some of these, like some of you people are same age, National Science Foundation, you remember that? The National Defense Education Act, you remember that? Uh, some of these other characters like Conant and Adler and Hutchins were uh, philosophers coming out of the University of Chicago, bigwigs in their day. Uh, let me just make a passing reference to Boyd H. Bode on the right hand side Boyd H. Bode grew up in the parsonage of the Christian Reformed Church his father was a minister and a missionary who set up a number of the churches in western Illinois and in north central and northwest Iowa I grew up in a church that was established by Boyd H. Bode Boyd Boda was also the subject for my doctoral dissertation. Nobody that had done an intensive biographical analytical study of this particular man who was equally powerful with John Dewey during the 1920s and 1930s. He was rated as one of the top three educational philosophers in the country. But Boyd Boda went off to grad school and lost his faith and became an enemy of the gospel. At first, he was trying to defend the faith. He met, went to philosophy meetings, met John Dewey, and John Dewey out-argued him, and pretty soon he became a disciple of John Dewey rather than of Jesus Christ. He ended up spending the bulk of his professional career teaching, preaching fervently, the gospel of democracy. The only way to heaven is to be democratic. Sounds like Bill Clinton. <laughs> Just trying to figure out who the Republicans are and who the Democrats are. 
the Democratic Party still preaches this. Heaven on earth is attainable if we all become tolerant of each other and all learn to work together like nice fraternal delegates. That's, you know, where this heaven and the sky, forget it. Boyd Boda became a disciple of him. And fervently in his classes at Ohio State University, where he spent most of his career, would get up on top of the big grand piano in the auditorium. His classes were so large that they had to use the auditorium for his philosophy classes. He would get up off the stage on top of the grand piano and fervently preach the gospel of democracy and the death of Christianity. So I, I entitled my dissertation Christianity versus Democracy. Uh, a study of the relationship between the kingdom of God and democracy. In his case, the devil won. That kind of war, very subtle, it's engaged at all kinds of levels. It's an academic war for the souls of men, for the souls of young people, for the souls of children. I'll, how did I get off from that? <laughs> that was a digression. I'll, what, what you have here, historically in America, are two polar positions. The one group says that it is based on subject. It's a subject-centered approach. Everything is based on academic subjects. And we build our whole educational system from that foundation upwards. The other group says that we build our whole edu educational system, our total philosophy, on children. We are child-centered. And we put our spotlight, we put our focus there either on children or on the subjects. And those two positions are historically fighting each other. And about every 10 or 15 years, the pendulum swings. Right now, I'm not quite certain where we are. I haven't been following close enough the last few years. But outcomes-based education was basically a child-centered approach. They're saying... The kids are the most important things. And if you don't master all these subjects, that's irrelevant. We just want to make certain that the kids are, are treated nicely and they're, they're both dead wrong. If you put your spotlight on the kids, or if you put it on the subjects, you're missing where it ought to be. The real focal point, the real spotlight has to be on God, the creator, the provider the judge. Don't ignore kids. Part of your perspective has to take into view the nature of children. And I've always said, Jay, Loretta, you probably remember this, because I've preached it in every class, and yes, teachers do preach. I preach quite often. I used to preach to my students, if you don't love kids, don't go into education. Stay out. Schools don't need teachers who hate kids. You must love kids. Doesn't mean you tolerate all their shenanigans. Doesn't mean you aren't a firm disciplinarian, but you must love them. Also, you ought to love the subject matter. You ought to love history if that's going to be your primary tool. You ought to love biology. You ought to love Hebrew or whatever. It's part of God's revelation. It's part of what he's given to you as a gift. 
But the spotlight always has to be on relating all of that to God, the Creator. And then, in connection with that, of course, you have to go back to Him. If you really believe that He is the sovereign Creator and upholder of the universe, and if He is the author of the Bible, if you believe that that is God's Word, then you ought to go there for your basic instruction. You ought to say, God, what do you want your kids, your children, to learn? And then be open to his answers. Now, let's take a look a little bit more at that basis or that foundation. couple of quotations from John Kelvin that might be helpful to you. I've uh, come to love Kelvin tremendously over the years. From the Institutes, Book 1, Chapter 6, Section 1, he says this, Just as old or bleary-eyed men and those with weak vision, if you thrust before them a most beautiful volume, even if they recognize it to be some sort of writing, yet can scarcely construe two words, but with the aid of spectacles will begin to read distinctly. So, Scripture, gathering up the otherwise confused knowledge of God in our minds, having dispersed our dullness, clearly shows us the true God. The emphasis there on the spectacles. I can't read that without my glasses. I can read from here to there most of the time with my, with my trifocals. After I went into the pastorate, and those of you that are in the ministry, try it if you haven't already done so. Get trifocals, and by just a slight tilt of the head, you can read at various distances. I can read things four feet away if I got my head cocked just right. If I don't, <laughs> it's terrible. And I can't... Con anyway, another digression. Sorry about this. No one can get even the slightest taste of right and sound doctrine unless he is a pupil of Scripture. It is therefore clear that God has provided the assistance of the Word because he foresaw that his likeness imprinted upon the most beautiful form of the universe would be insufficiently effective. Kelvin, you know, is giving, and this part of the Institutes is the genesis or the origin for Cornelius Van Til's sets of ideas. Van Til borrows heavily from Kelvin for his whole presuppositional apologetic. And uh, Kelvin is saying there that by virtue of creation, we do have knowledge of God. We do have consciences. We know, because of the conscience written on our hearts and our minds, what is right and wrong. But it's so muddy. It's so confused. It's like you have cataracts. You're walking around in darkness unless you get correction. And the scriptures will correct our vision. I think that's a beautiful, helpful kind of distinction.
updated version of what Kelvin was saying there. Some of you I know have children in Bellflower Christian schools, and some of you have had other experiences in what we call CSI, Christian Schools International. It used to be called the National Union of Christian Schools. They have adopted this kind of position, and they still have it in their basic constitution. They don't always live out of it. They don't always remember that, and don't always apply it, but they have said the basis of Christian Schools International is the scriptures of the Old and New Testaments, the infallible word of God as explicated in Reformed creedal standards. On this basis, we affirm the following principles for Christian education. The Bible, that God by his holy word reveals himself, renews man's understanding of God. There's again, renew, make new again. Of man himself, of his fellow man, and of the world directs man in all of his relationships and activities and therefore guides his people also in the education of their children. You recognize where my definition of education comes from? Nothing is new under the sun. We all borrow. It's just a question of where you borrow from. Basically, my definition is borrowed here from the schools that raised me, the places where I grew up from the time I was first grade. Uh, renewing, making new, recreating, redeveloping those relationships, first of all between myself and my God, and secondly between myself and my fellow man, and thirdly between myself and the vast universe in which he's placed us. Making new what once was pure and perfect and holy and righteous and then because of the curse of sin, everything became soured and darkened and now has to be illuminated. And we have that light in the Word of God. Let me give you another way to look at it. And hopefully by showing you different angles and different perceptions of this. I'll, is anyone here in the construction business? Okay, there's one. I'll... Well, I, obviously, we're not in Covenant Church in Payless Heights. Uh, Three-fourths of our, our people are in the construction business. Uh, we have all kinds of contractors, plumbers, electricians, everything here. But you've all had houses built or you know how you build a house. What is the very, very first thing you do? Put in a foundation. You put it in a foundation. And of course, you have to dig a hole usually. You couldn't put a foundation on the top. But the foundation is the crucial thing. How many foundations do you have in a typical house? One. You ever try to build one with two or three foundations? It won't work. You can only have one foundation. And then what do you do? Then you start building on that foundation. And pretty soon you're going to have a completed edifice and you're going to have a roof and you're going to put shingles and chimneys and all that stuff on and you're going to fill it with good things, furnishings, but there will be that foundation. When you look at the typical house, you're walking down the street, taking your morning walk with your dog. Do you see the foundations? Nope. They're usually not exposed for you. 
They're there. They're crucial. But you don't see them. That's what Cornelius Ventil is talking about. It's an assumption. It's a presupposition. It's something that usually lies just beneath the surface. And you have to dig down to get at it. I'm saying that everybody has a set of ideas about education. And everybody has some kind of foundation on which they are building. So everybody has a basis. Everybody has some authority to whom they go for final answers to ultimate questions. When you are critiquing anybody, that's one of the most important things you can do, is to try to figure out what the foundation is. What is that person's ultimate authority? We had a very extensive debate at General Assembly last week. It's history now. And we were debating with the man who essentially said that he had two foundations. Yes, he believed the word of God. He believed it was inerrant. He believed it was infallible. Yes, there is another foundation over here from which I also work, which is called science. And I cannot reject science because that too is God's revelation. I have two foundations on which I built. And the General Assembly said, you can't. You can only have one. We're sorry. Is it going to be the Word of God? Or is it going to be science? You choose to insist on two, you can no longer function as an office bearer until you change your mind until you learn what the truth is. I said well ago, I have found that kind of approach to be tremendously helpful over the years as I have looked at and analyzed and tried to critique different perspectives, different philosophies of education. I don't know how involved you got in the OBE controversy some of our parishioners got very involved. And they got, they were quoting Rush Limbaugh. That's a poor fellow. He's funny. But that's not a good authority. You can do better than that. <laughs> uh, they didn't quite know how to take me. But I tried to point out to them that Rush Limbaugh is just, you know, making political and financial hay off some of this stuff. And he doesn't have a good foundation either. So what you need to do is go back and ask, you know, what is the foundation or the basis of OBE and why is it wrong? Why must you be on guard against it? Because it sets man up as the ultimate authority. It sets man up as the ultimate authority. Sometimes you're surprised at where, uh, what foundations you find when you begin to analyze and critique. We're going to talk briefly tomorrow when we talk about the nature of kids. Maybe that's coming tonight. 
when we talk about the nature of kids, the nature of students, we're going to talk about the communist perspective. How do communists view kids? And surprisingly, when you examine the thought of Karl Marx, Karl Marx, too, has an ultimate authority to whom he goes for final answers. Anybody know? What? History. history? Well, yes, but now history is so broad and so expansive, you have to be much more narrow than that. Where in history and whom in history does, did Karl Marx build from? Uh, well, he uses Hegel. Oh, yes, so do the theistic evolutionists build on Hegel. He's one of the building blocks. Plato. Plato. I say, what? A lot of Christians build on Plato, too, different sides. Plato becomes, for many people, their ultimate authority. Plato says, therefore, Platonic idealism was very popular subject in communist schools during the heyday of Russia. He was, in a real sense, their ultimate authority. If you go to a man like John Dewey, John Dewey, a very popular philosophy, and you begin to examine, and you're going to find that, again, he says, ultimately, man is autonomous. Man is his own boss. He can decide himself. Now, if you will all listen to me, because I am first among equals. <laughs> and what he's doing there, basically, is setting himself up as God. And that's very, very common. You say that, you know, yes, we believe in the equality of all men, because that's one of our fundamental assumptions, that all men are created equal, but listen to me, because I have all the answers then you're setting yourself up as God. Let me just conclude this session with this kind of reminder and plea that when you are going to address any specific, significant kind of concern, that you first of all ask, what does God say? What does God say? because this is his world. Last week at GA, I heard a very interesting anecdote which I want to pass on to you. And I forget who it was. It may be some, one of the delegates in this room, but somebody said they went to Westminster Seminary and they went as this young junior to class with John Murray. And they had to write a paper for John Murray. And they waxed eloquent and they put all of the best ideas down and they turned this paper and finished it and handed it to John Murray and then waited for the reply. <laughs> and uh, pretty soon John Murray called them in. And uh, the paper was just red inked from beginning to end. And it was given an F. And the student was highly incensed and proceeded to say could I argue that point with you and proceeded to argue for some time in Professor Murray's office and uh, finally Murray said to him are you all finished? exhausted he said yes 
And Murray says, I don't give two cents for what you think. I don't care at all what you think. You never ask the question, what does God think about this? That's the only thing that matters. Start over and try again. Ouch. I'll leave you with that. If you have questions, we do have a couple of minutes. We're supposed to adjourn at about 10-2, I believe. Uh, got a couple of minutes. If you have a question or two, I'll uh, entertain. If you're anxious to go for a walk, let's go for a walk. See you later.